Greetings and welcome to another episode of Contemporary Philosophy Global Conversations, brought to you by the Saudi platform for culture and philosophy, MANA. This week we have a really wonderful conversation with Professor Charles Wolf from the University of Venice in Italy. Charles is a professor of the history of science and philosophy, and he's a specialist in the history of French materialism specifically 18th century French materialism. And there aren't many people who know more about one of the leading and most provocative figures in that movement, Julien de lafray Lametri, than Charles. So Lametri's philosophy is where we dive right in and think about uh, how to understand materialism, its relationship to naturalism, and its overall place in the history of philosophy. So I hope you'll enjoy this conversation. Thank you. So welcome back to another episode of Global Conversations with, um, today we'll have our guest Charles Wolf. Professor Wolf is a professor of philosophy and the history of science at the University of Venice. Um, Charles has a long list of accomplishments and has a extraordinary set of achievements in, in the history of philosophy and history of science. He's one of the um, leading scholars of the history of materialism, in particular the history of French materialism in the 18th century. And Charles is also a dear friend. I've known Charles a long time, and I'm really happy to have the opportunity to, to ask him a little bit about his, um, his own views of philosophy generally, um, and to tell us a little bit about the arc of his work, the trajectory of his work. And I guess it's one way to get into the question of, you know, what is materialism as a, as a sort of a guiding and overarching philosophical view is rather than sort of sketching it at the, at the, at a general philosophical level, Charles, I, I'd like to begin with Lamatry. So um, Lamatry says, as you know, that the best philosopher is the doctor who knows how the body works. So there's a relationship in the materialist tradition between medicine and philosophy. At the same time, there's something in some ways very anti-humanist or anti-humane. Many of us find the materialist tradition to be a kind of aggressively, um, it's certainly anti-supernatural. It's certainly critical of notions like the soul, um, questions of value, et cetera, are, are, are challenged by materialists. And another thing that Lamatrice um, says this, you know, is, um, you know, that he who takes man as an object of study should expect to have man as an enemy. So in some important sense, there's a kind of natural reaction that Lamatrice is expecting from, from, uh, uh, from, human beings to the materialist project, that the materialist project is in some sense um, a repellent kind of project. So can I say something to that? Uh, thank you 
first of all, thank you, John. It's a pleasure to be here, uh, whatever here means. It's, it's good to be talking about these things. It's uh, hopefully an important thing to be talking about. So indeed, I work on the history and philosophy of materialism. And you know, you could wonder, well, what does that mean? There are different possible definitions. And so you already kind of prompted me referring to this very colorful 18th century French doctor and philosopher called Julien Fred de la Métrie, whose most famous book is called Le Machine, Man a Machine. And the title has often been the source of kind of slight misreading of his thinking, because you see a book called Man a Machine, and you think, okay, he thinks that we are machines. A bit like a lot of people thought he was the... Um, distant father of a kind of computational point of view, you know, we are computers. It's not really true because he's obsessed, you might say, with the fact that we are flesh and blood creatures. So organisms or embodied minds or biological agents, biomedical agents. And so not right. really. So it's, it's worth mentioning, for example, that he also wrote a book called Man, a Plant, so, um, but I, I wanted to say something more general in response to your question, which was, and the quotes you gave, the, the more challenging quotes you gave from him, point me a bit in this direction, which is, materialism as a philosophy was from the ancient Greek times till quite recently, so somewhere in the early 20th century at least. That's a long time. So for a couple of thousand years at least, roughly corresponding to the duration of something like Western philosophy, materialism was something like the, the bad view or the heretical view or the crude view. And idealism, you know, you can think of Plato, perhaps of Aristotle, Neoplatonism, of um, Avicenna, a lot of great philosophers, perhaps many of the great philosophers or the official great philosophers have been idealists. What is an idealist? Well, you know, that might be another program for you, but an idealist either believes that there's a realm of eternal forms like Plato or believes that the structure of our minds matches the structure of the world or in any case, if you think of Descartes, believes that to understand ourselves is something radically different from understanding a piece of meat or a stone or a galaxy or why water boils at a certain temperature. That understanding ourselves or the person, uh, consciousness, meaning, value, all those kinds of things we like that somehow that exists in a world perfectly separate from, well, the material world. And the materialist from ancient times on to la maîtrise and in some sense on to now, well, says, in fact, some of what I've tried to write about is that the materialist doesn't have one strict answer. So some people think for materialists, I think you use the word inhuman or lacking humanity. So indeed, if I said, we're not really here right now, there's just a bunch of atoms and the physicist can tell us the truth about what's going on in this room or between us as we're talking. 
that's just physics. Well, of course, there's a sense in which that's a bit strange, you know? If I say to you, my dear friend, it's a great pleasure to talk philosophy with you. It's been a long time. What is the physicist going to be able to tell us about that phenomenon? So some of the interesting materialists, like Lemaitre, who's a doctor, say, well, all these mysteries about how body and mind relate, are we free? You know, is our, do we have free will in our actions? Mm. Are we genetically determined by the sort of the biological substance that's somehow flowing through our veins? La Maitrie says, well, I think you quoted it, uh, the best philosopher is the doctor who knows how the body works. And notice that he wants that person to still be a philosopher. He doesn't say philosophy used to be something valued in our culture, but it's actually nonsense, and we should leave serious issues up to the scientists. doesn't quite say that. And... Um, Again, a big topic that we may or may not discuss today is how the status of science has changed so that we've come in the last couple of centuries to view science as a kind of perhaps ultimate authority or certainly a very big authority. And um, I think the 18th century is a time of a lot of conflict where for example, if you think of people like Isaac Newton and in England, the kind of culture around people like Isaac Newton, those are people who are not in conflict with certain kind of, well, uh, the church in England at the time, because they're saying we're studying the beautiful laws and complexity of the universe. We're, the more we learn about the complexity of the universe, the more we, we realize there must be as they say, a designer. And, well, Lamitri is not one of those guys. He's, he's a materialist, and I'm not sure if we want to discuss the question, should all materialists or are all materialists atheists or not? The answer is no. Not all materialists are atheists. Um, Lamitri is probably one of them. But... Good. I you yeah. said a lot there, Charles. I, I think the... the um, it would be really useful to get a sense for how you understand the change in the history of materialism. I mean, obviously the, the uh, I guess it's Russell, when Russell talks about the his Bertrand Russell, who talks about the history of materialism being this kind of discredited, um, marginal view that always seems to be attractive to certain kinds of rebellious figures, but has never gained real credibility in serious intellectual life. So Russell, of course, was writing in the early 20th century, and that was his kind of read of the history of materialism up till, till his day. Um, things changed, as you indicated in, your, in, your, in, your, um, in what you just said. And now we see with this sort of rising prestige in the 20th century of science, we see something like materialism or physicalism taking center stage. So in, in the West, certainly, physicalism or loosely defined materialism seems to be the kind of dominant ontology, the dominant picture of the kinds of things that exist. Maybe you could say a little bit about that, that change and how 
how someone like um, someone, well, how you, for example, understand the place of philosophy in relation to the new ascendancy of the natural sciences in the 20th century. So the question is, for a philosopher, we look at what happened in the 20th century, the rise of science, and the sort of secondary place, in some sense, culturally of philosophy in relation to science. And maybe you could put that in perspective for us as a historian of, of materialism and contrast it, let's say, with precisely this kind of Lamatrian spirit of the philosopher as doctor, doctor philosopher. So let, let me disobey the, the parameters you're suggesting. Okay. Because, you know, sometimes a little disagreement makes for good conversation too. Um, um, no, because I wanted to say something like, well, I'm not sure if. So there's a sense in which perhaps for a certain kind of philosophers or scientists that, as you say, materialism slash physicalism, which we haven't really defined here, but we'll get to that, is a kind of de facto or default or common view. And I just wanted to push back a bit and say, well, it seems to me that except when you meet certain kinds, so people in areas which you've worked in and are been a specialist in and I haven't, like philosophy of neuroscience or philosophy of biology or the recent field of philosophy of psychology. Let's say all, all those people match exactly what you're describing. But when you take a walk through continental philosophy or through people who like, so sorry to use a pointless technical term, but that's the thing. I think it is a bit pointless. Agent causation. There's lots of philosophers who are, I don't know how to say it, obsessed sounds rude, who are enamored, you know, who are strongly more than fond of the distinction between reasons and causes, you know, that we act from reasons. When I choose to, well, I was going to, I don't know, think of some French Revolution or American Revolution example, but perhaps think of another one. You know, when I choose to do some really brave political act compared to, let's say, many of my fellow citizens, those kinds of philosophers want to say, you see, that's where materialism is false because he, say Charles, was acting from reasons. He, he wasn't being pushed by his molecules or what he ate for lunch or the 5,000 years of genetic history of his family, you know, his ancestors and their nutrition. And those distinctions seem to me stipulative. It's as if I say, well, I defined action as X and I define the material world as Y, therefore I've shown that X is not Y. And so those kind of pulling a rabbit out of a hat arguments have always sort of annoyed me, which doesn't mean that I want to hand over, and this goes back to what you were asking about, it doesn't mean I want to hand over control to the, you know, the nefarious neuroscientist or the physicist. And so here, let's take this word physicalism. A very, a very great philosopher, uh, I think of English origin, but did his career in Australia, called J.J.C. Smart, who scored you know very well. Smart, in one of his uh, encyclopedia-type entries on materialism, says physicalism 
is the form of materialism defended or espoused today by most professional philosophers. And there's a funny kind of argument from authority, like if you're a guy with big opinions who likes to talk loud and thinks you're a philosopher, you might believe in a lot of things. But if you're a professional philosopher, materialism means physicalism. And so uh, I was very impressed by that. But in a sense, I've spent some of my work trying to kind of push back a bit against that because what does it mean to give such a privilege to physics? So in a funny way, when you were talking about the prestige of science, I don't read a lot of those books, but we all have noticed in any country in the world, um, the popularity of those sort of books about the universe, books about quantum physics, books about... Good. Maybe I, maybe I could interrupt and, and just... I, and I'll just say, we uh, like the, the people who like those books, in a way they're liking bad metaphysics. Sorry, I just... Sure, that's... That's actually very funny. Um, the, so let's talk a little bit about what we mean by physicalism. So broadly speaking, and you can correct me if you disagree with this, we, we would say something like physicalism is a position in ontology, ontology being the science, in quotes, of all of the things that exist, so the study of being. Um, it's a position that says anything that exists either is a basic part of our physical ontology, some part of our fundamental physics, or is determined by, fully determined by, the components of our basic physical ontology. So the components of our basic physical ontology would be, let's say, what the latest physics tells us the basic stuff is, whether it's quarks or gluons or fields or whatever it is. Um, so, physicalism assumes that that's somehow established and that our best source for insight into the kinds of things that exist is our latest best physics. And I think you would, you would probably agree that that's, the, that, that's a, sort of a rough-ish characterization of what people mean by physicalism. And it certainly did seem to characterize much of quote-unquote professional, or Anglo, at least Anglo-American professional uh, philosophies, sort of background ontological assumptions from, let's say, the at least the early 60s to, let's say, the mid-1990s. Um, so in that sense, I think, I think Smart was right. Um, but of course, the, 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 as you point out, it's, you know, the, the question is, who are the, quote-unquote, professional philosophers that he's that he's talking about, right? So what is that, you know, by saying all professional philosophers, obviously that's false. That that was false then and it continued to be false throughout. But insofar as he was talking about the community of Anglo-American philosophers, it was a reasonably, reasonably accurate portrayal of the fundamental yeah. physics, or the, so the fundamental add, ontology rather. Let me add another familiar um, ism. Yeah. So materialism we have physicalism and something that I've I was going to say I've always found certainly ever since the, the last years of my long graduate studies I've always found fascinating creative open is naturalism and actually another one of those I think he was literally Australian philosophers of David Armstrong um, he has a paper 
where I think he distinguishes naturalism as the broadest view, so a, a view that's not itself a foundational claim about the nature of the world. It's a view that allows the natural sciences to, in a sense, populate our discourse or to have effects on our philosophical discourse, which an anti-naturalist would not allow. So I was describing something about Descartes earlier, and there's a sense in which Descartes, or perhaps a caricatural Descartes, would say, no, there's nothing about the mind that the neuroscientist or the, that kind of you know, scientist who claims to be speaking perhaps about the same object as the philosopher, but somehow like, no, that can't happen. Anyway, so, so Armstrong sort of says the broadest view is naturalism. Materialism is a more specific commitment to, you know. Maybe you could say a little bit about what naturalism is, Charles, I think it would be useful. Well, so I was, what I said a sentence before was that in the broadest terms, it's the view that philosophy should be open to modification from the natural sciences. And that's really broad. That doesn't mean a kind of retranslation or reconfiguration of everything in our common human life in terms of some supposedly exact scientific language. So there was a funny moment a little bit before our time as students, I guess, so maybe in the 80s, but we certainly read about it as students, when certain celebrated neurophilosophers, the, the Churchlands, husband and wife philosopher team, Churchlands, there was a phase in their career where they were Maybe they were trying to be provocative, I don't know, but certainly a lot of people made fun of them for believing this, for writing this, which is the idea that in a kind of, as science progresses and as neuroscience progresses, in a world of the near future, we will no longer need to say vague and ambiguous things to each other like, I love you, or I hate you, or I'm a little bit upset with you, you know, because of course those are notoriously those get humans in all kinds of trouble, right? We disagree about what they mean. And the Churchlands at some point said, well, you know, once we really know how the brain and mind work, we won't need to say, I'm angry at you today. We might say, zone 32B was activated today. And so it's as if, if that really happened, we couldn't even be in disagreement anymore, right? there would be this kind of strange, perfect chessboard of human life where things would be mapped out. And if that didn't really happen, and you know more than I about the, the technical reasons why that didn't happen, but um, that was a bit of a digression, although I think it's something that the materialist has to talk about, whether or not those things were true or silly or <clears throat> interesting but false. Naturalism in the broadest sense, is what I was saying before, is not the view that some chunk of natural science has to dictate to the philosopher what he or she can believe. It's a more, it's a more imminent view. That, and um, uh, the French philosopher, so precisely a non-analytic philosopher, Gilles Deleuze, Deleuze, uh, late in his career, wrote about how philosophy, science, and art were somehow both on the same level 
and both seeking, or each of those three, were these kind of fundamental activities, seeking to organize or apprehend or systematize something like, you know, what some philosophers would call the manifold, you know, the complexity of the world out there. And that takes us into further issues. But I think what I wanted to say before about naturalism is that there's something very appealing in it because it keeps a place for philosophy because a certain kind of dogmatic privileging of science obviously takes away the job of the philosopher. And it's not that I'm worried literally about my job in the sense of a salary, but it's quite fascinating to see people in, you know, UT Place, who's kind of forgotten, except by a specialist. John Bickle is a contemporary example of this. You know, people who are, in a sense, they are being, in fact, it's probably relevant, they are being paid a salary by a philosophy department. But they're there, they're essentially there saying, by the way, you guys should cease to exist. Because the more things get refined and efficient and scientifically technical, the less room there is, the less need there is for you slash us, because after all, they are philosophers. Let me push back a little bit here again. Um, let's think about this idea of, um, of the best philosopher being the doctor who knows how the body works. Um, if we think about the relationship between philosophy and medicine that's sort of running through this conversation, that in some sense, the, the, the medical doctor is the model of the good philosopher. Notice that there are some really thickly normative notions here, like health, best, etc. none of which are really, you know, how could the materialist give us any insight into what, the, what health is or what, what, uh, what, we, what we mean by a judgment like, uh, you know, the best philosopher is a dot, dot, dot. I mean, is, the, is, the, is, is there room or can you see how someone like a Lametri or on your own view, how you'd be able to give an account of health from a materialist perspective? Yeah, so if I take the, the phrase, so you, you pointed to a kind of normatively loaded words and you gave two examples. So if I start from the second, not from the word health, but from the word best, or mm. rather phrase, the best philosopher is the doctor. Mm. I'll just clarify that a bit, which is, I think the point there is that many wise philosophers have fought long battles over, is the soul mortal or immortal? What is the relation between the soul and the body? And around the 17th, 18th century, the word soul, something I've been writing about a little lately, the sort of strange shift from the word soul to the word mind. And sometimes people say, oh, I mean the same thing. When I write soul, I just mean mind. And that's a bit of a shift because presumably certain uh, holy texts, when they say soul, they didn't just mean mind. That's, that's a story to itself. So when Lamétrie says the best philosopher is the doctor, I think he means, well, actually, he, he does mean what you have in mind. So in a sense, you really put your finger on something. Because first, he means, I, let's say, I, the doctor philosopher, let me see, I can get rid of thousands of years of back and forth debate. I can say, well, actually, this is how they interact. And he gives 
cases about poisons, about hallucinations, um, you know, instances where corporeal, sta corporeal states have impact on mental states and vice versa. Now, to the more normative dimension, well, Lemaitre often says, ancient philosophy knew what it was doing because it was about the good life. Modern philosophy, and we know this very well, let's say he was starting to warn about it in the mid 18th century, and sadly for us, what he was complaining about has only gotten worse, namely, most of philosophy ceased to be about fundamental questions like life and death and the good life, and it became something very technical. You know, you became someone who does a career on arguments for the nature of time, or you become someone who does a career on three arguments for why Locke is right or wrong about matter or mechanism. So Lamitri says if we look at Cicero or Seneca or some great you know, Roman or Greek ancient philosopher, they're writing books about what it means to live, what it means to live well, and big surprise. The doctor has a fairly concrete sense of what my happiness is as an organic being. So, of course, some of us, and that's something Lemaitre wonders about, some of us do pursue happiness that seems to make us very, oh, physically unhappy. But let's just say he's an Epicurean. And Epicureans in the old days were very virtuous individuals. They were not obsessed with the pleasures of the flesh. They were obsessed with balance. Somewhere along the way, this is to me something very interesting, the so-called modern Epicurean, and Lemaitre is one of them, becomes someone who says, well, life is about happiness, happiness is pleasure. Now, of course, what's pleasure? For some people, it's going to the opera. It's not eating a lot of chocolate. But Lemaitre tends to think that our body plays a pretty important role, our desires. They push and pull us, and we, our education, our culture, our ethics, are kind of trying to shape this big mass of impulses in a certain direction. But I wouldn't say that my favorite part of his uh, thought is his politics or his social philosophy. He's a bit cynical about things like that. Yeah. It might be the sort of inevitable circumstance of uh, the materialist to, to be cynical. But. It, there's a sense in which doing the history of philosophy, which is, by the way, not just like stamp collecting or arranging things into little boxes. Precisely, it allows you to, for example, I'm interested in Locke. Locke is often thought of as something like the first great empiricist in the early 20th century, an important German philosopher, Husserl, says rather aggressive things about empiricism and naturalism as these kind of crude pseudoscientific or scientistic doctrines. And going back, by the way, to naturalism and anti-naturalism too, of course. Well, someone who has spent a little time with Locke, don't have to be a world specialist at Locke, someone who actually is trying to understand what are his goals, what are his books meant to achieve, in what context is he writing his books, etc., etc. Someone who spends a little time on those questions suddenly sees 
I know this is not very polite, but let's say Husserl's wrong. I'm not saying he's wrong in his project overall. And, and someone might say, oh, it doesn't matter that he's wrong about Locke. His critique of something called empiricism is still a brilliant critique. Well, let's say it matters to me, not just because I like the individual called John Locke. Maybe I'm interested in empiricism. And I think that there's something to empiricism that 20th century philosophy in many ways squished into the ground without realizing they were squishing something good into the ground. Okay, that's, that's a sort of philosophical example. So I studied some continental philosophy, as it's called, and then I came to the States uh, again for further study and was exposed to something very different, which um, we met. And I, I think that materialism for me was both an, an in-between kind of doctrine because it was a doctrine looked upon with suspicion by most continental philosophers. You mentioned Sartre two minutes ago. Sartre has this incredibly aggressive essay, at the time a very famous essay, called Materialism and Revolution, where materialism for him seems to be the philosophical version of Taylorist assembly line vision of humanity. It's yeah. like he's used the human being to a kind of factory worker doing repetitive motions. Mm -hmm. And the final philosophical form of that is materialism. Mm -hmm. So you can imagine I don't, I don't agree. And then you could say, okay, he's fighting a fight in post-war France against a certain kind of communist party. You know, it's where you get to be some independent Marxist in a fight with a party. Yeah, that's another story. Good. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting to me. One, one point that I took from what you said is that doing the history of philosophy allows you a kind of freedom and in your thinking um, and allows you to make connections in, you know, extraordinary, very creative ways. Even in this conversation, we've seen lots of really fascinating connections that you've made. Um, maybe you could say a little bit about that then in terms of your own professional identity. And this is where we'll wrap up because um, I know that uh, your new book, um, Reading Materialism, Lire le Materialisme, um, which is, we'll post a link to, it's going to appear with the Ecole Normale Supérieure um, Press. Um, I know that in, in your in your recent work, you're, you're making a lot of connections and doing a lot of work within the history of philosophy that are speaking to, contempt, to, to general philosophical issues and issues of general philosophical concern, but always grounded in these close readings of particular uh, figures in the history of philosophy. That's an extraordinary, so there's a sort of funny, it's not funny, but there's a, there's a peculiar freedom to doing the history of philosophy that someone, let's say, who works in technical philosophy of biology or in, um, let's say, in contemporary analytic metaphysics might not have. So you're able to speak to issues around, you know, what is life? What is the nature of the organism, etc.? What is matter in ways that... Um, as I said, are sort of grounded in the history or grounded in the tradition, but are still, you know, um, directly relevant to, to well, ongoing topics of philosophy. That's, that's a very, that's a generous way to talk about my work, and I, I thank you for that. 
The truth is, indeed, history philosophy allows one a kind of careful eclecticism in dealing with the objects you're trying to understand. On the other hand, if you're trying <laughs> to get them right, whatever that means, you suddenly find yourself in a community, in a kind of discursive community, where, and it changes from country to country, and here my the fact that I've, well, studied, but also worked in, in some different countries. I'm not sure that it makes me especially wiser, but it certainly means I've seen, it's a bit like the way the traveler in the early modern times realizes that there are different customs. You know, not all of us realize the significance of the fact that there simply are different customs in different places. That sounds banal, but... So, for instance, I moved back to France at a certain point, and I must have, perhaps I quoted Daniel Dennett, or perhaps I used a term from contemporary philosophy of mind in a workshop on Cartesian theories of mind in the 17th century. And people looked at me with horror, and they said, well, how can you be using that term? That term doesn't belong here. And, of course, it took me... Years, in a sense. I mean, not, I don't mean my whole life, but it took me a while to be able to formulate proper replies to that, to say, well, let's say I'm going to give a definition of both what the historical person means by X and why I use term Y. And I'm, I'm essentially going to give a protocol, as someone once put it to me. He said, you need a protocol that will connect the two objects or something. Anyway, so it's not always fun and games in the sense that people want <clears throat> often with, sometimes with good reason, they want these constraints. But so you mentioned my book. Well, that book has mainly essays on modern, which is to say 17th, 18th, 19th century materialism, including cases that speak to some of your earlier questions. So there's an essay on dreams and materialism. There's an essay on laughter and materialism, both of which are, you might say, anthropological, you know, moments where materialism meets those parts of the human, which aren't just pure physics. Again, so you know, going back to yeah. your conversation. But the book goes up until issues like embodiment in contemporary philosophy, even feminist philosophy, and it goes into so-called new materialism. And so there, I sometimes want to wear the hat of the historian and say, you people think old materialism is X, but you must not have read a lot of old materialism because your new materialism is already there in the old, which sounds a bit, a bit pathetic. But. Charles, the, um, I guess the, um, by way of, of wrapping up, I'm, I'm, Asking philosophers who I speak with, um, I didn't prep you for this one, I'm sorry at all, um, but I'm asking philosophers about their hope for the future of philosophy and, and where they see things going and where they would prefer, let's say where they would prefer to see things going. So what do you, if you're thinking about um, folks starting out, younger philosophers and and the kinds of topics they're working on, maybe advice for them in their education. Um, what would you say? Uh, so your, your hopes for the future of our really, discipline. Advice is really the hard one these days. Okay. Just, let, me, let me go to the beginning of your question. Yeah. So 20 years ago, 
something like that, maybe almost as much as 20 years ago, at dinner at a very distinguished Hungarian philosopher, Agnes Heller, who's no longer, no longer with us, would be my professor at some point. She was a bit, I'm not sure if the word is bitter or she had the vision that great philosophy was somehow over. And, you know, where are, we used to hear this phrase, like, where are the great philosophers today? And so she was kind of saying it's a thing of the past. And I, I was a bit younger then than now, maybe more filled with, you know, enthusiasm and, and hope for the future. I sort of said, and or, uh, uh, embarrassing post-May 68 Deleuze Guattari and enthusiasm, I said something like, oh, of course it doesn't matter that there's no great French or German philosopher. They will come from elsewhere. They will come from, you know, lands that were not viewed as traditional philosophical lands. Just like the way the geopolitical wor world changes, well, the philosophical world will, in some sense, obviously, will change too. Whether or not, you know, when I say obviously, I don't mean that it has to map instantly, you know, is whichever country is on top of the geopolitical order, does it produce the best philosophers? That's an interesting question. Probably not obviously yes, answer. I, I do think some of that either is still true or should be true. A, and of course, China is an interesting case there. And we've both spent some time there, I've spent more than I have. And it's as if you can tell something fascinating is happening there. It's not easy for us without a lot of preparation to, to decipher, to pick apart, to speak you know, about what that is. Um, okay, in America. Yeah, that's a, that's a really nice point. I, I agree, Charles. I think uh, it's, certain, it's almost inevitable that the future of philosophy will be in large part Chinese. Um, and I think in some sense, you were about to say something about America, but um, <laughs> yeah, okay, I'll just let you, you speak. I, I have my own I, I know space, you, you're, so. you're not interested in hearing about America, you're in America, but. <laughs> I'm in America. <laughs> and I'm not. Uh, and I, I was just going to say, in America, there's been something happening, which I tend to observe with real interest or appreciation, but it depends how it's done. So there's an effort to so-called broaden the canon, to bring in figures into, well, that's the thing, either in, in, into the canon or perhaps to explode the canon. And they could be um, well, minorities in different definitions of the word, of course, notably women philosophers. Uh, huge new grant was just given out this past week in, um, I think in Canada for a couple of million dollars on that. Now, that can be done in a disappointing way, which is to say, if I take Anton Wilhelm Amo, the present-day Ghana, so early 18th century philosopher of African origin who studied in Germany, if I take him, he's actually not a good example because it seems likely that most of his philosophical output was actually fairly generic German. You know, it was not distinctively African. This is a point of contention in the scholars who are starting to work on this guy. Yeah. And he claimed as an African philosopher, mm -hmm. should we judge him on his output? In which case his output is decent quality output for someone in early 18th century Germany. In any case, the disappointing result of that kind of broadening of the canon would be to take 
someone from what was the periphery, bring them in, and then proceed to write standard issue articles on are they a dual aspect monist or not? You know, to sort of sanitize them that way. If they were brought in and people were doing research in such a way that they were not repeating the categories, the sort of sedimented categories of wherever they came from, you know, some, some influential professor of 70 years ago, well, that, that would start to be exciting. That would start to be, again, sort of geopolitically exciting. Not, I'm using the word geopolitical now in a funny way. I don't mean China or the ex-Soviet Union or some other sort of axis, you know, center of the world. I just mean like in literature where authors writing in English from India significantly modified the status of what, I don't know what to call it, Anglo-Sure is in the past 30, 40 years. And so I I don't mean to glorify specific authors from from that part of the world, but if philosophy could do that, well, it would have done something pretty, pretty creative. And some philosophers have been calling for that, but uh, and so I, <laughs> advice is a very difficult term to use because, um, you know, one, one remembers, this is a bit of a bitter thing to quote, but one remembers this philosopher who I think you've preferred, uh, you like him better than I do, but it's a, a line that always impressed me of Wittgenstein, some young, brilliant student of his wanted a letter of reference, you know, wanted advice about how to go on. He was perhaps his best student or something. And Wittgenstein says, oh, no, no, I'm not writing you a letter. And the guy is a bit surprised. He says, well, I'm sorry. I, I thought I'd been doing really well the last few years, and you, you thought my work was very good. And Wittgenstein says, yes, but there's no place for you in this profession. You should leave. You should go do something else. It's a very bad profession. And the guy is a bit puzzled. He says, well, what about you, you know, Professor Wittgenstein? And in this beautiful phrase, Wittgenstein said something like, oh, don't worry about me. I manufacture my own oxygen. And so uh, I'm, I'm not Wittgenstein, uh, obviously, but it's a strange time. Well, perhaps it's always been a strange time in this profession, but some universities are in crisis in Europe for completely different reasons. Uh, universities in the English-speaking world, in Australia, in the UK, in the US particularly, or I'm not sure about Canada, are in crisis for more sort of financial reasons. You might say, yes, but that's not what I was asking you. You want a pure philosophical advice to the young philosopher. Um, In which case, I think I would say something like, try and learn, and I'm not sure I followed this advice. You know, no one gave me (laughs) this advice in my case. Try and learn as much rigor as possible for some years in order to then methodically take it apart and sort of explode some of that rigor. Uh, It's as if, you know, you need the tools, but then instead of having the tools dictate to you, you should be able to start taking them apart. Beautiful. Charles, that's a great place to end. So thank you so much for joining us. And um, 
uh, we're very grateful. And uh, if folks want to contact you, I guess they can find you on the web and send you an email. And uh, sure. looking forward to reading your new book and um, continuing the conversation. I thought you were going to tell us that we should all learn to make our own oxygen, but uh, maybe that's what you were saying also at the same time. So I, I can't, I won't answer. Okay. Thank you, Charles. Thank you, John. Bye.